The reading is taken from 1 John chapter 2 verse 28 to chapter 3 verse 10 and can be found on the church Bibles on page 1226. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love of the Father, sorry, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Thank you very much for reading that. Shall we just pray that we understand that passage? Heavenly Father, we ask that as we explore this passage together that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and guide. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, can I start just by thanking you very much indeed for uh, hosting me this weekend. Um, uh, it's a delight to be here. I've known Clive um, many years, mainly from General Synod, so I've had a very um, uh, distorted view of him. Um, <laughs> uh, General Synod has that effect, generally speaking. Um, uh, but uh, I've known him for a long time, and I've uh, obviously known about St. Mary's through John Marlowe. Um, so it's great finally to be here and to be among you. I do hope I get the chance to meet as many as possible over the weekend, uh, because it's... Uh, uh, it, it's, it's good, isn't it, to establish relationships, particularly if we hope that this might be one that goes on for some years to come. Well, uh, in choosing 
these passages from John's letters for this weekend of teaching, um, I tried to choose passages that were full of the joys of the Christian faith, but at the same time uh, full of uh, total awareness of the challenges that any Christian will face and that the Christian church as a whole faces. And as you read through all of these three letters of, one, uh, of, of John, you can't help but form the conclusion that the early church was under a good deal of threat from people who were trying to persuade it to believe things that weren't uh, those things that were taught by the apostles. Um, and the situation that the church was in in those days really uh, in some ways has never changed and it's certainly true in our own situation today. Uh, we uh, exist in an environment where there are lots of people urging Christians to move away from what they traditionally believed and what we need to do is to come back to the Word of God uh, and hear again the voice of the apostles as they show us just what is in the mind of God and what isn't. And John's, uh, John's letters are a great sort of tonic for people who are concerned about where the church is going, but also want to communicate the joy of the Christian faith. So let's turn then to this passage from 1 John. And uh, if you're looking at it in the, uh, the, the handouts that we've uh, got, you'll see that the little passage here is headed Children of God. Now, I don't know how many famous uh, fathers and sons and daughters you can think of. There's, um, I mean, Jeb Bush is still just in the running for the Republican nomination in the USA, and he had a famous father, didn't he? George Bush. Uh, and, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a distinct family likeness between those two. Um, what other fathers and sons can you think of? There's Kirk Douglas and Michael Douglas. Um, uh, if you're, if you're a, 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 a sort of a, a literary buff, there's Kingsley Amis and uh, Martin Amis. If you're a politico, there's Tony Benn, if you remember him, and um, Hilary Benn, um, much more up-to-date. Um, and if you, if, you know, with all of these people, as you think of them, you can, you can detect family likenesses, can't you? When you hear Hilary Benn speak, He's got very much the intonation of his father, Tony Benn, hasn't he? Um, and, um, uh, and, and, and so have the, uh, the entire Bush family in the States. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that I was watching um, one of these quiz programs on TV, and uh, I was watching Boris Johnson's sister. Now, all Boris Johnson, just they all look like Boris Johnson, don't they? Um, and... Uh, I mean, fortunately, his sister looked nicely different. But uh, as I listened to her, you know, and, and, and you, you just sort of pick up exactly the same sort of intonations of voice, the same hesitations, the same forthrightness, and, you know, and, and you could see her biting her tongue so she didn't say anything that was going to scotch his attempt to become prime minister. You know, all, all of those things going on. Well, all sorts of things we do show that we're a member of a particular family. And in this passage in 1 John 2, uh, John says the same thing about Christians. If you're a Christian, you too are going to show the family likeness. And that is very, very important when you're trying to distinguish between 
true Christians and fake Christians. Because the church has always had these two in it, um, and when they are in leadership, it can get very confusing for people, can't it? it? Um, And John says, well, look at the family likeness. And uh, as you go through uh, the whole of uh, John's first letter, but you see it in um, this particular passage today, uh, you see that um, John is saying, look, when you're plagued by false teachers, um, what they will be doing is giving you permission to sin. They will be giving you permission to sin. And that's precisely what the false teachers were doing in John's day. Uh, They were downplaying the significance of sin um, uh, and and, and effectively saying, look, it doesn't really matter what you do with your bodies, it's the spiritual that really matters. And it's not far off the sort of uh, blandishments that we have uh, in today's church. You know, it doesn't so much matter what we're doing um, in our, uh, with, with sexual intimacy between people, uh, that doesn't alter whether or not you're a holy person. That's the sort of thing that's being said. And the Apostle John, of course, will have none of it. Uh, back in the uh, first verse of chapter 2, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not sin. Um, and this, this, this business of falling into sin and acting accordingly is so alien to showing the family likeness that that is something that can tell you how to distinguish between the false and the true. So how do we, as people who want to follow Jesus Christ, how do we manage to keep away from the falling into sin bit and move more clearly to the showing the family likeness bit? And John's answer to that is right at the start of our reading. And now, dear children, continue in him. Continue in Jesus This is no dry moralism. He's not saying, you know, well, you've just got to be clear what sin is and do your best to avoid it. You've got to, you know, follow the following 47 exercises each day to make sure you're not sinning. No, he says the key is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the key. The closer you are to him, the more you continue in him, then the more you'll be showing the family likeness and the less you'll be falling into sin. Now, he, um, he goes on immediately to say, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. You see, a Christian life is a life that isn't a, a moralistic life. It's a life where we are close to Jesus, where we are looking forward to being with Jesus, And we are living life in the confident expectation of his return. Now, how do you feel about Jesus Christ coming again? Do you you worry about it? Do you think, uh, well, maybe I'll discover then that I haven't actually been a very good Christian and uh, in fact I'll be for the chop instead of actually being welcomed into heaven? Do you think, well, I don't know whether I'm going to make it to heaven or not? You know, I'd like to think I was, but I can't be sure. John says, no, that's not what's... That, that, 
you haven't got the hang of it. John's point is, look, if you know Jesus and if you've put your trust in him, and if you're continuing in him, you can be confident. And you'll be unashamed at his coming. When he comes, it won't be as though he's found you out doing what you're doing. No, he'll be, you'll, you'll be looking forward to seeing him and he'll be rejoicing that you're in his company again. That's what it's like living the Christian life. Why? Well, because Jesus himself has dealt with all of our sinfulness and he's transferred to us all of his righteousness. Well, let's see then how this argument develops through 1 John 2 and 3. Now, in dealing with the, uh, the whole issue of sin in our lives, the first point that John makes is our motivation is our future transformation. Our motivation is our future transformation. Chapter 3, in the version that you've got in front of you, doesn't quite capture the Greek original. The Greek original is a bit more like this. It's, look, stop, see, don't you realise just what an astonishing love the Father has got for us in that although we were sinners, God has adopted us as his children. That's the thrust of the original. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Isn't it amazing? What's your life been like this week? What's your life been like? Oh, I mean, I, we all know on the surface it's all absolutely lovely. It's, it's, it's you know, Basingstoke standard, isn't it? It's, it's, it's um, you know, you've been living up to what everybody expects. But behind the scenes, what's your life been like? When the doors are closed, what's your life been like? When everyone's gone to bed, what's your life been like? What's your life been like when you've just been left with your own thoughts? Now, I don't know about you, I have some pretty bad thoughts from time to time. And I think to myself, how could God accept me? How could he accept me when I'm like this? Here I am, appointed as a bishop in the church. If people knew what was going on in my mind, I would be defrocked if I was wearing any frocks. <laughs> well, I would. And yet, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Isn't it marvellous? Despite that, despite the murkiness that sometimes is in our lives, despite the compromise of our lives, actually, God says to each one of us, you're my child, you're part of my family, you're going to be with me forever. Isn't it wonderful? He can deal with all of that side of me, he can regard me as good enough to keep him company forever, all because of that supreme act of love when Jesus Christ died for me, wiping out my sin, past, present and future, and giving me his righteousness. 
Well, now, the world around us doesn't rate the idea of uh, being God's children as particularly spectacular. Most people, I think, assume they are God's children. But verse 2 says, we are indeed God's children, and one day, one day, we're going to be completely transformed. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. One day we're going to be completely transformed. We're going to be like him. We're going to be able to see him face to face. We're not going to be tempted to sin anymore. We're going to have all the moral purity and strength of Christ himself. Have you ever thought about how amazing that would be? Just have a think about Jesus. Think about what he was like. Have you ever found yourself wondering how Jesus managed to do what he did? How he managed to demonstrate love, even though he knew that the people he was loving would eventually turn on him? How he was so confident he was doing the Father's will, that it was exactly what God had told him? Have you ever wondered how he pressed on to Jerusalem, knowing that when he, was, when he got there, he was going to suffer a terrible death? Have you ever wondered how he stopped himself in the agony of the cross from summoning hundreds of angels to help him? He was perfect in every way, wasn't he? He was perfect in obedience. He was wholehearted in love. He was wise as a teacher. He was uncompromising yet gracious. And all of those characteristics are going to be yours. Isn't that astonishing? It is, and I think it applies to me. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, if, God's, if that's what God is going to do, well, then we have a wonderful future to look forward to, don't we? And everyone who has that hope, says John, tries to live up to it in the here and now. So everyone who sins breaks the law, he says in verse 4. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. In him is no sin. No one who lives in sin keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Prince William knows that other things being equal, one day he's going to be king. And that future prospect shapes his present, doesn't it? So he's doing now all the things that are consistent with his future status. Um, When John Marlowe was with me as a curate, he did all of the things that were consistent with what he was going to do when he became a, a vicar, because he knew that that was the next thing that was going to happen. And it's the same with children of God, with each one of us. If we know that we're children of God because we've put our trust in Christ, then we know where our future lies. And that is the thing that motivates us to live more like Jesus here and now. That's the thing that motivates us. It's not, I've got to stick to the rules, or I can't let God down today because, you know, I've got to got to live up to this and I've got to earn so many brownie points we're looking forward to our righteous future 
and so we start living up to it here and now. We don't act righteously in order to, to, to deserve it. We try to act righteously because that's the life we're looking forward to. And if we don't act that way, maybe we don't have that hope. So, our motivation is our future transformation. Secondly, our righteousness comes from a relationship. Our righteousness comes from a relationship. Um, I wonder how good Clive is at pastoral care of people. If you tripped up on the way in and were sort of, you know, dragging yourself into church and wincing with pain and so on, what would Clive do? Would he, would he put his arm around you and inquire, you know, what had happened and, you know, make sure somebody put your foot in hot water and eased your pain? Or would his sympathy last about five minutes and then say, oh, for goodness sake, stop crying, don't be such a baby? <laughs> well, I, I think he'd probably err on the side of pastoral sensitivity. No, no, no. <laughs> Supposing somebody did say, stop crying, don't act like a baby, or don't be such a baby. Why do people say that? Well, they, they, they say, don't be such a baby, not because they think there's any chance of you actually becoming a baby. They say it because you're clearly not a baby, and therefore you shouldn't act like one. And that's precisely what John has to say in the next section, verses 4 to 10, as he makes this point that our righteousness comes from a relationship. He says in verses 4 to 10 that acting righteously and avoiding sin is something that is consistent with our new nature as God's children. But the new nature we have comes from a new relationship with God. So in verse 6, John says, no one who remains or abides in his sins, uh, no one who lives in him, keeps on sinning. In other words, if we have become linked with Christ by deciding to put our trust in him, then we're going to do the sorts of things he likes doing and avoid the sorts of things that he doesn't. So verse 5, he came to take away sin and he always avoided it. Verse 8, we're told he appeared in order to destroy the devil's works. And somebody who sins is doing the devil's work, so anyone who's in a relationship with Christ is going to avoid sin. Now, let's just have a think about this. It is true, isn't it? If you, like, if you, if you want to hang out with someone, if you're in love with someone, if you're spending an evening together, you, you try and do things that are consistent with each other, don't you? You don't deliberately try and rub each other the, the wrong way unless you've had nefarious reasons for arranging to meet one another. Generally speaking, you try and get on. Uh, and, and particularly if you're in love with someone, you're doing your best to like the things they like and avoid the things they dislike. That's why our relation, our righteousness, comes from a relationship with Jesus. We try and do the things he likes and avoid the things he dislikes. 
And that means that in our lives, we're going to discover uh, that the work of the devil uh, is destroyed. Now, the word there for destroy is from the Greek, uh, luso, from which we get the word loose. In other words, when Jesus Christ enters a person's life, the work of the devil in their lives is loosed. Um, let me try and illustrate this by referring to Jenga. Anyone played Jenga? Yeah, good. So with Jenga, you pull out blocks, don't you? Um, and you keep pulling them, and the idea is to keep the tower from collapsing as you pull progressively more blocks out. But of course, the more blocks you pull out, the weaker the structure becomes. And you know what's going to happen eventually, don't you? It's going to collapse. You just hope it's not the one you pull out where it's going to collapse. That's a bit like what this is talking about, the loosing that leads to the destruction of the devil's work. Bit by bit, these things are being pulled out of our lives that are the devil's work, bit by bit, not everything all at once, bit by bit, and ultimately, ultimately, the devil's work will be destroyed. So, let's put all this together. Our lives are being progressively changed, bit by bit. The reason they're being changed is because we've got a relationship with Jesus that makes us want to live like him and avoid the things that he's opposed to. Uh, that's, that, that's really what we're saying. And yet, you might be saying to yourself, yes, but is that really true in my life? Has it happened for me? After all, I, I do sin. I do sin from time to time. So when John says, you know, that, that, that everyone who sins breaks the law, in fact, sin is lawlessness, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And you can start to feel, oh goodness, no one who continues to sin uh, has, 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 has known him. Perhaps I don't know Jesus because, you know, I have sinned. I have sinned last week. I sinned the week before, in fact, yesterday. Well, today actually, and the day before, and the day before that. So perhaps I don't know him. That's not what John is saying, is it? John wrote this letter to give comfort and assurance to Christians. So he's not saying that. What he's saying is, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. If you were reading this in the NIV, it would be no one who makes a practice of sinning. In other words, no one who incorporates this sin into their lifestyle. In fact, builds their life on it. That's what John's talking about. He's not talking about the fact that we all fall into sin. In fact, if we denied that we fell into sin, we would be completely disobedient. Um, John makes clear that, 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 that we're deceived if we think we've never sinned and we, aren't sin and we aren't sinners. So it's those who build it into their life that have neither seen him nor known him. Now you think, well, in what ways would I build sin into my life? There isn't, there isn't a, an area that suggests itself more easily, is there, than that of relationships outside marriage. 
Um, and um, you know, just over supper now, I was chatting about some Christian leaders who've you know, fallen from uh, their high position because they've been hiding an affair over several years. Um, making a practice of sinning, building it into their lives. And then there are those who advocate it within the church that we should uh, be approving of relationships outside marriage between a man and a woman for life. I suppose there are other, other claimants to making a practice of sinning. If uh, in your business life you made a practice of deceiving people, made a practice of defrauding people, uh, those sorts of things. So my question really is, you know, do we see ourselves in any way as being in danger of building this into our lives? Because if we do, brothers and sisters, that does need to be addressed. Let there be no doubt whatsoever that this is incompatible with being a child of God. And therefore we do need to repent and turn around, knowing that there is nothing that he won't forgive. And if we're sitting there feeling guilty, but actually what we're feeling guilty about is not having made a practice of sinning, but just the fact that from time to time we all fall into sin, well, be reassured. Uh, this passage is just assuring us of how great the love the Father has lavished on us that despite all that, we should be called children of God. So, our motivation for righteousness and to avoid sin is our future transformation. Our righteousness, all the good that appears in our life, comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then lastly, well, lastly, let me turn all this on its head by saying that the way we live will affect the way we think. The way we live will affect the way we think. Why does John put such an emphasis on living a righteous life if we want to remain in Christ? Well, surely the key to, uh, you know, we, we would think if we've been coming to church you know, regularly, surely the key to living a Christian life is to, you know, um, read our Bibles and, and um, keep registering the fact that we trust Jesus in our minds, perhaps keep coming to communion to remind us. What does the way we live have to do with the way we think? You know, surely our thought processes are determined by what we read and what people say to us. Well, the answer is, that actually the way we live does affect the way we think. And John is very concerned in verse 7 that we should not be led astray or deceived into anything else. You see, there are two types of deception. One is from within and one is from without. If you take the deception that comes from within, supposing I started shoplifting, um, trying to think of an occasion when I might have shoplifted. <laughs> Going back a few years, I'm sure I did. Um, anyway, never mind. Um, supposing I did start shoplifting, 
Uh, no doubt, when I left the shop, provided I hadn't been accosted by the security guards, I would justify what I'd done. And I would justify it on the grounds that, well, these chains of shops are hugely exploitative, aren't they? Uh, they, uh, they operate on very tight margins. They take on board the fact that there are going to be losses through shoplifting. I'm just one of their statistics. Uh, in any event, I'm just recovering some of the profit they've made out of me over the years. Uh, you, I, I don't know. I would justify it in all sorts of ways. Supposing I, supposing I had an affair. Uh, I, I'm, I'm quite sure I would soon start saying, well, God surely can't condemn me for this. After all, it's only natural. And, and how could something so loving and beautiful be condemned by a God of love? And so, because my behaviour had changed, my thinking would have been influenced. And I would have been deceived. Deceived by my own behaviour. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. But deception also comes from without. Just looked at the deception that comes from within. There's the deception that comes from without. Now, we don't know exactly what the false teachers of John's day were peddling, but it seems likely that they were offering a spirituality that bypassed sin, and of course that's very attractive, isn't it? Uh, if I can know God, but still carry on behaving as I like, I'll go for it. But if I do, then I'm deceived, as so many people today are, by suggestions that they can develop their spiritual side without any change whatsoever in their behaviour. So, as we finish, let's look at these last few verses. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who are the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Answer, anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Living as a child of God, living righteously, requires us to take decisions. It's one thing to avoid obvious sins, but righteous living isn't purely reactive. It's about positively doing the right things. With our time, with our money, our emotions, our creative skills, and so on. Time and again, people are led into deception because they've not made positive decisions in favour of righteousness. They've not said no to those career moves or contracts or clubs or courses in order to make sure they can give time to their families and their church family. Wasn't it refreshing to read in the paper today of that radio presenter who's taking over um, a, a main show on BBC Radio um, and before he ever went into any of this business and the media, 
he had an agreement from the BBC that he'd never be required to work on Sundays. And um, when he was asked about it in an interview, um, uh, he said, look, I don't see why I should be persecuted for uh, being a Christian or for having this belief, he said. I'd just like to spend time with my family in my church with my friends. That was a good answer, isn't it? Because those are Christian priorities. But if we do make those decisions in favour of righteousness, if we do keep trying to purify ourselves, then the good news is that we grow closer and closer to Christ. We abide in him or continue in him, as our translation puts it today. And as a result, we live with joy, contentment and confidence about the future. just had an inspiration just now it's helpful this whole struggle with um you know this this fine balance between you know we go on sinning but we're, we're righteous in christ and you know how does it all how does all that square up really and i think it's just helpful to think in terms well one of the things that could be helpful is this word orientation that if we want to orientate our lives on christ that's where our orientation is towards Yes, we'll mess up along the way, but ultimately that's where we're wanting to orientate yeah. towards, as opposed to, you know, some of what you were describing, people who maybe have turned away and are orientating in another direction. Yeah. Is that all? Yeah, that's, a g- that, that, that's great. Thank you very much indeed, that, that, that we keep Jesus before us all, all, always. Fix your eyes on Jesus, we're told, aren't we? Um, the, the heading of this section was um, a a question of identity. And uh, I think one of the key points to come from the passage is that um, if we really see ourselves as children of God, if we we just realise what God has made us, it just affects everything about our life, doesn't it? Um, It it is an orientation, but it springs from um, a realisation of what God has made us to be. Uh, people who will be in his family with him forever. Um, And that is a remarkable thought. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Thank you for that. One more. This is just an observation as much as anything. I think we had a discussion about <coughs> the fact that um, it takes you a long time, it can take many years between becoming, a, so once you become a Christian, to do that reorientation. And, and because there are so many things that you're often not aware of that, that, are, that you're giving priority to in your life. Mm. Um, and actually it can take you some time to, to spot what those are. And so it's a very gradual process. That was just an observation in our discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Which is interesting. I mean, it, 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 it ought to make us less judgmental of others, shouldn't it? Because we're all in the, the same process. And yet, by, by going on about righteousness, people always assume that we're being judgmental. But um, 
all we're really wanting to do is show the family likeness. Right, uh, one more question and then we're finished. Anyone got one thought to share? Very good at avoiding questions so far. That's what I like, one side of the room to the other. I might have trouble um, expressing this clearly. I think you said that uh, when we come to meet Jesus, or when he returns, it would be like just carrying on the relationship with him uh, as almost as though we were meeting an old friend, if I understand you correctly. Um, at our house group last week, the person who was leading said that you know, if Jesus had walked into the room then, we'd all, well, uh, um, most of us would just sort of fall down in awe and um, be fearful which I, I think probably would be my reaction anyway. Hmm. Um, I just wonder whether you can comment on that, because you know, I think you know, if Jesus were to walk in here now, uh, I'm not sure what our reaction would be, but I suspect we'd all be sort of trying to, to hide under the chairs. Or, um, but, but obviously it shouldn't be like that, but that, that seems to be a natural reaction. Perhaps you could comment. Yeah, I, th I, I think there's a lot of truth in that because when you read in the Bible about people encountering uh, God or one of his messengers, you, you, it is a, a, a very fearful thing to happen to them. Um, so, you know, even a, a, a godly man like Daniel, you know, is, is, is almost uh, you know, laid out stone cold dead by his encounter. Um, so, if we are exactly as we are now, and we were to encounter Jesus Christ, then I think that, that we might have every reason to um, be very fearful of that encounter. But that's not what John says. You see, what John says is um, what we shall be uh, we, um, has not yet been made clear. So, um, chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And the great thing about Jesus' second coming is not just that he comes again, but that at his second coming, all his people are transformed in the blink of an eye. Uh, we are all made perfect um, when we meet him, so that when we meet him, uh, we're, we're, we're not in a position to be ashamed. We're not, in a, uh, we're, we're not in a position where we need to fall down dead. We have been transformed. We've been made perfectly like him. In this life, we are being made more and more like him, but that job will not be finished in this life. We will not achieve perfection. Uh, but the fact that we are changing shows that his spirit is living in us, but the job will be completed when Jesus Christ comes again. And that's why we will have no fear and we won't be sort of um, uh, needing to take cover. Okay, well, let's call a halt there. Uh, more from John's epistles tomorrow.